From the newsroom of the Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with the Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with the Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, July 20th. Today, President Biden's renewed attempts to close Guantanamo Bay and the return of mask mandates. So the Biden administration has transferred a prisoner from Guantanamo Bay back to his home country of Morocco, and it marks the first transfer of a prisoner from the high security facility under the Obama administration. Missy Ryan covers national security for The Post. Um, Senior officials said 10 of the remaining detainees are eligible for repatriation. Any sense yet of the targeted timelines for transferring them? And is there a broader goal within this administration of closing Guantanamo Bay? Has that timeline been set? Yes, our goal is to close Guantanamo Bay. And really, it's the second since 2017 because President Trump halted what had been a pretty robust resettlement program from Guantanamo Bay. And it marks what we think potentially is the resumption of an effort to close the prison, which has become a symbol of some of the problems that the United States encountered in its response to the 9-11 attacks. The prisoner transferred out of Guantanamo is Abdul Latif Nasser. He has been there since 2002, and he's now 56 years old. The U.S. government believed that he was an enemy combatant who spent time in an al-Qaeda training camp in the 90s. But they never charged him with a crime. He was one of five prisoners who was teed up for resettlement at the very end of the Obama administration. His transfer was approved back in 2016 by an interagency panel that looked at these prisoners periodically to say, is it safe for the United States to release or resettle these people or do they need to hold them longer? And this panel found back then that Abdul Latif Nasser was eligible for resettlement for transfer back to his home country of Morocco. And what happened was that for various reasons, this group of prisoners at the 11th hour were not able to be transferred. This was January of 2017. There had been expectations that some of them would leave the prison, and instead they ended up getting stuck for another four years. And so he is now finally getting the transfer that has been approved for all this time. And what has the Biden administration said about this publicly and about their plan for Guantanamo? I mean, are they saying we are going to close this detention camp and that Guantanamo will be no more? Yeah, President Biden does want to close the prison. And if you recall, he was vice president when President Obama, way back in 2009, vowed to close the prison as one of his first acts as president. This first executive order that we are signing... Uh, by the authority vested in me as president by the Constitution and the laws of the United States of America in order to affect the appropriate disposition of individuals currently detained by the Department of Defense at Guantanamo and promptly to close the detention facility at Guantanamo consistent with the national security and foreign policy interests of the United States and the interests of justice, I hereby order. And the Obama administration really did undertake this very intense 
effort, especially in the early years, to close Guantanamo, but it faced so much opposition from Congress, from local officials who thought that it was too dangerous to release some of these prisoners who had concerns about settling them in countries that were either in the midst of war or potentially having concerns surrounding their ability to safeguard some of the prisoners. And so basically it was stymied for a long time. The Obama administration did transfer or resettle more than 170 prisoners either to their home countries or to third countries. And, you know, there were mixed results for that. Some of them have really thrived and flourished. Others weren't able to pick up their lives again, or some of them did have security concerns. But that all ground to a halt when President Trump took office. This morning, I watched President Obama talking about Gitmo, right? Guantanamo Bay, which, by the way, which, by the way, we are keeping open. He was very, very opposed to letting any more prisoners out. And we're going to load it up with some bad dudes, believe me. We're going to load it up. He, at one point, had promised to fill the prison up with new terror suspects. That's something that never happened, but it really was indicative of his policy and his approach to national security. There was only one detainee that was transferred during the Trump administration, and that was someone who was sent home to Saudi Arabia to serve out the remainder of a sentence he was given under the military trial process. And I think it's just worth going back to understand what are the origins of Guantanamo and how long has this prison been in existence? The facility at Guantanamo Bay has been around for a really long time. It's a military facility on the eastern tip of Cuba. And uh, it was made famous in part during the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it's something that has a long history. But it became this international symbol of the excesses of America's response to the September 11th attacks. In the months following September 11th, you saw all of these prisoners shackled in their orange jumpsuits, blindfolded or hooded, being taken to Guantanamo. It was more than 700 prisoners at its peak, and they were imprisoned there. Now it's been almost two decades. Most of them were never charged, and some of them were resettled or released during the Bush administration. And there's been this winnowing of the detainee population. But basically, advocates will say it really has come to symbolize what the United States did wrong. And also, it was kind of a rallying cry for extremists around the world because they could point to this and say, this is unjust. You know, the United States is treating a largely Muslim population unjustly, and it has also been controversial in terms of its legal basis. And that is something that the Biden administration is seeking to grapple with. It's incredibly complicated because of the um, the potential for renewed congressional opposition, something that we're already seeing hints of at this point. And then the question of these military trials, which have just dragged on for years and years and with lots of legal and procedural problems. You said that there is continued opposition, uh, especially in Congress. Tell me what people are saying who believe that Guantanamo should not be closed. Well, you know, I think everybody recognizes that Guantanamo is not an ideal situation. At this point, you know, there are only 39 prisoners that remain, and the cost of maintaining the prison is very high. So you're looking at cost of millions of dollars a year for each detainee. The detainee population is aging. Many of them need medical care that is not available on this island. And everybody recognizes that the military commission process has not worked out as planned. So while there's an acknowledgement that that is the case, there is also a lot of concern, especially among Republicans in Congress, about the prospect of bringing 
any of these prisoners to the United States, either for trial or for continued detention. And that is one of the things that is a potential solution that Biden administration would have to contemplate if they're going to close the prison. It would be bringing some of the prisoners who have not been charged to the U.S. for continued or potentially indefinite detention. And number one, that would be a legally risky strategy, and it's one that Republicans are already saying that they oppose. Missy Ryan covers national security for The Post. This week, Abdul Latif Nasser was released from prison, sent back to Morocco, and is now at home with his family. They will spend Eid together for the first time in 19 years, which in their eyes is a miracle. In a statement, Abdul Latif said, quote, I have no words to describe my overwhelming sense of happiness and joy. And there are other people who have been waiting to hear about Abdul Latif's release. It feels good from our perspective. Like, I, I think the U.S. government promised this man to give him his, his freedom, and they gave it to him. And that's great, and it feels great. But there are also 10 other men alone who have already been cleared for release that are just waiting there, who are free on paper, but they're stuck there. And besides that, there are many men there that haven't gotten their fair trial. If you listen to a lot of podcasts, you might know this voice. It is Latif Nasser. He's one of the co-hosts of Radiolab. And as you may have noticed, his name is very similar to Abdul Latif Nasser. That weird coincidence was essentially the origin of a whole podcast series. It's called The Other Latif. And Radiolab Latif goes on this deep dive to understand more about the Guantanamo detainee who shares his name. And this is the story about that guy. The other Latif Nasser. The one that the census does not count. The one that if you write him a letter, and I have many times, it'll just come right back returned to sender. The one that doesn't have a passport, a driver's license, a social security number, or a phone number for that matter. I've come to think of him as a black hole in a black hole. And that's because the other Latif Nasser is detainee 244 at Guantanamo Bay. We talked to Radiolab Latif on Monday afternoon to hear about what he's been thinking since Abdul Latif Nasser's release and about who this person is beyond his identity as a Guantanamo prisoner. This guy grew up in Morocco, nerdy Muslim kid from the suburbs, you know, middle class, loved science, had a kind of boisterous family. He felt a lot like me at the beginning. And so for me, I was kind of looking at this guy and I was thinking, what happened here? The U.S. government took Abdul Latif into custody because they believed he had engaged in terrorist activities. But his defense attorney pushed back on almost every premise of those accusations. She was saying, you know, this guy was effectively an aid worker in the wrong place at the wrong time. He didn't do any of those things. He wasn't in al-Qaeda. He, he, uh, he didn't have a relationship with Osama bin Laden. Like, none of these things are true, is what his lawyer said. And so for me, I thought, OK, there's like a, like a vacuum of information here, except for two things, which are diametrically opposed to one another. And somehow nobody has really been 
covering this hmm. and somehow just because of my name I've, I've been sort of thrust into it and and now I can't not do it you know what were some of the moments from his life that you really honed in on or that you felt like you were able to get a little bit of a better picture of who this guy is there was a moment that was a big question which was at one point in his life he he goes to Sudan and he goes to work on Osama bin Laden's sunflower farm and it was such a mysterious thing because he he was in he before that he was in Libya he was with his brother like the, his life sort of made sense up until that point and then for some reason he just goes to a country where he knows nobody to work on a farm he's a city kid he doesn't have any kind of farming experience so far as i can tell on paper and why and kind of like trying to report that out really hard, trying to figure out, make sense of this guy's life. You know, we came up with a, interviewing his family. Basically, you, you can sort of piece together, oh, it has a little bit to do with maybe his mom's death or maybe it has a little bit to do with his feeling like, uh, you know, he, he was a very promising young academic kid, potentially uh, the first in his family to go to college. But then he drops out because it doesn't go well. You know, he, he was sort of frustrated. He had all this academic promise and he, and he sort of spirals out because so much of this reporting process was, was just like just piecing together just the tiniest scraps of information and trying to make up a, a full picture of a life out of it. Well, it feels like that in and of itself is part of, I think, what is for many people so problematic about Guantanamo is that because there is this vacuum of information about the people who are there, it's so easy for them to be two-dimensional, even one-dimensional, um, because they're just a name in this kind of obscure black box of the U.S. criminal justice system. And so I feel like what you were trying to do with this person in many ways like pushes back against what Guantanamo is at its core, which is like taking a person and saying that they are a terrorist and then leaving the details at that. Yeah, I think you're entirely right. Like it does feel like an erasure, an erasure of a of a personality. And so, for example, for so long in Guantanamo, she's just a black box. He didn't have a lawyer. He didn't have. So there was a. It's really hard to find out anything about him. But then we got this one sheet, and it was a list of his weights. Periodically, they would weigh him, and you'd be reading it, and you'd be like, "Is that?" Like, that's either a typo or a hunger strike. Like, I, I can't tell. Or or maybe he's sick. And we were trying to piece together, like, what? Like, imagine if someone had to recreate your life or, or try, to, try to imagine your whole life from just a list of your weights over time. What do you know about how he was treated in Guantanamo? He was not waterboarded. There were other... You know, interrogation techniques that were used on him that some, including myself, would would call torture. For example, sleep deprivation, very prolonged solitary confinement, sensory uh, deprivation, sensory overload. He suffered serious hearing damage from being next to like noise machines that were running or generators that were running for prolonged periods of time. Temperature extremities, you know, things like that, that I think I, I think most people would agree is torture. Did you get a chance to talk to his family or find out from them what it has been like for him to be in prison for all these years? I did. I did get a chance to talk to his family, and it was very intense. I felt like they were a family in mourning, but without the kind of closure of a, of a death. And for them, it's been 19 years of just of just waiting to get their brother back, to get some kind of closure, to actually see him in person and be able to 
yeah, kind of have this person back who, for for all intents and purposes, besides like, you know, once a month video calls, was like a ghost to them. Yeah. Well, especially because my understanding is that he was supposed to be released from prison at the end of the Obama administration, or at least transferred out. And then that didn't happen once Trump was elected. And that I can't imagine what that must have been like for his family to have the prospect of his freedom be so imminent and then have that taken away at the last minute. Yeah. And to go to the family's house and to see they sort of renovated a portion of the house to make a little apartment for him. Oh. And they were all ready for him. And even him in, at Guantanamo, he had given away all his stuff. He thought he was leaving. My fellow producer, Susie Lechtenberg, and I, we went to Morocco and we visited his family. And I, I just had one of the eeriest experiences of my life, actually, with one of his sisters. And it sort of plays out in tape, and you can play it now if you want. So about a dozen relatives in all came out to meet me. In any case, after the greetings... They cooked us some lunch, and it's called basilla. It's a special Moroccan dish. Uh, he asked if you can stop recording. They didn't want us to record lunch, so I set my microphone down and went to wash my hands. And... One of the most striking things that's ever happened to me in my life happened next. I got intercepted by a petite woman in a hijab, whom I later learned was Abdul Latif's sister, Khadija. She saw me and just gasped and, and started crying. She started speaking Arabic really fast. I grabbed our interpreter, Tariq. He told me what she said. She said that... She'd known I was coming, and she, she knew that I had her brother's name. But what she didn't expect was that I was his height, that I had his build, that I looked like him, and that I was around the same age that he was when she last saw him. Looking at me, she said, and, and, and actually would later say again and again, she felt like she'd gone back in time. She she just wanted him to be in her home so bad. And there I was, and I was close enough, you know, and she, she would take it. Do you know what things are going to be like for him now? Have, have you talked to his family at all? Or do you have a sense of what his future might look like now that he's been released and sent back to Morocco? I've talked to his family. He has a his, he has a sort of a job lined up for him with his brother uh, who has like a pool cleaning company. One other thing that seems really sort of healthy, I guess, uh, besides having a, a stable family waiting for him, a job, uh, a place to stay within the city that he lives in, Casablanca, there is a, a kind of a rehab center for basically torture victims where he can be rehabilitated. There's another thing, which maybe maybe this was sort of naive of me, but but when I when I first got into this story, I, I remember thinking like, you know, if and when they let this guy out, like if he wasn't pissed at the United States then, like, he's going to be pissed now. And and that's sort of what I thought. But getting to know him through his lawyer and then also through his family, it seems like he's not angry, really. He's kind of just tired and sad. He he wants to start a family. He has a name picked out for a son that he's wanted now for, you know, 19 years and he's not been allowed to have. What do you think his experience in the past and going forward says about the legacy that Guantanamo leaves you know, around the world. The main takeaway that I've, like after staring at this guy and his case for almost now five years, it just feels like 
holding someone for that long, 19 years, no charge, no trial, tortured him. That is medieval. That is something that is not of the modern age. That set back, I believe, the American experiment to like a millennium, like before the Magna Carta. I think his getting out is one step, and there are, I think, 39 more to go here. It's one step towards making that right and bringing us back to, you know, 2021, where we, where we need to be. One irony is that w- while I was doing this series, I, I became an American citizen. And for me to be thinking about signing up for the values of due process, equal rights, and then be looking you know, for my day job in the face of a total vacuum of all of those things. I think it is cause for celebration that, th- that this man got out, that this country kept its word to this man, but there's still a lot more work to do. Latif Nasser is the co-host of Radiolab and also the host of The Other Latif. It is an incredible, award-winning six-part series that takes listeners behind the scenes of the American legal system to Morocco and inside Guantanamo Bay prison. It is so worth a listen. We'll put a link to the series page in today's show notes and at postreports.com. This story was produced by Ariel Plotnik. In-laws, love them or hate them, you're pretty much stuck with them. And when you're a ruler in the Middle Ages, that can be a serious problem. It might even land you dead. I'm Dan Jones, and on season four of This Is History, I'm telling the story of England's weirdest king, Henry III. He's in way over his head, and he's surrounded by bloodthirsty relatives with their eyes on his throne. To listen, search This Is History and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And now, one more thing from National Health reporter Dan Diamond. He spoke with producer Rennie Svernovsky. We will be implementing an order requiring masking indoors, regardless of vaccination, that will go into effect at 11.59 on Saturday, July 17th. Health officials around the country, especially in places where the Delta variant, the hyper-transmissible variant of coronavirus are taking hold, are looking to bring back mask mandates where folks would be required or at least recommended to wear masks indoors, specifically in Los Angeles County and a bunch of counties in Northern California. And then there are health officials around the country at least discussing whether it makes sense to bring back these protections. And why are we seeing these being renewed? A combination of reasons. First, the Delta variant is spreading very quickly, especially among unvaccinated Americans. And there are still 100 million plus Americans who haven't gotten a single shot of vaccine. There are kids who haven't been vaccinated. There are immunocompromised folks who can't get shots. So the hope would be that we can contain the virus spread until more people are vaccinated and until we get through this current round of variant challenges. I think another factor 
is that about two months ago, CDC told Americans, if you've been vaccinated, you don't need to wear masks in most settings. Many unvaccinated Americans heard that and took the message to be, we don't need masks at all. So we now have a situation where lots of people aren't wearing masks, even if they still need them. So in these places like Los Angeles County, Northern California, and I imagine places where there are hotspots like Arkansas and Missouri, how are people reacting to potentially having to wear masks after they were told it was safe to ditch them? It depends who you ask. Barbara Ferrer, the Los Angeles County Public Health Director, assured me that folks in Los Angeles County get it. They're okay with the return of the mask mandate. People that she's talked to understand the need. But at the same time, there are clearly many people who are unhappy about the possible return of masks. They've been turned into a culture war issue over the past year. There are Republicans in California, for instance, Kevin Faulkner, who's trying to unseat Gavin Newsom as California governor. Kevin Faulkner has said he doesn't think masks should come back. We're at a point where we don't need them. There are local protests in places where mask mandates are being considered. And in the U.S. Congress, there are senators like Rand Paul and Republicans in the House who want to get rid of mask mandates on public transportation. I think that there's an authoritarian impulse in the Democrat Party that thinks they know better. Uh, it's sort of this elitism that people aren't smart enough to make their own decisions, that the government needs to make the decision for you as far as your medical care. But really, if you look at the evidence, the evidence is pretty strong that uh, airplanes are pretty safe. So this remains a dividing line at a moment when we've already been arguing about this for over a year. Yeah, I'm wondering if these mandates would even be effective, especially if it's the same people who are hostile to the vaccine and have in the past been hostile to masking. Can they be convinced? That's a great question. Rebecca Gee, who had been Louisiana health commissioner, a Democrat, but someone who ran health care in a southern state, she told me she supported mask mandates last year. She still thinks we should have mask mandates in places like schools, but doesn't think that a widespread mask mandate works at this point, that too many people are too set in their beliefs, and the people who need to wear masks are not going to be convinced by a new order. She thought it would further drive them into their corners. And I think we also know from polling, people are increasingly set in their ways when it comes to the vaccine. The Kaiser Family Foundation had a survey recently where they followed up on what people told them in January. And for the most part, what people thought in January is what ended up happening. People who wanted the shots got them. People who didn't want the shots doubled down disproportionately and didn't get them. So we have seen a hardening of skepticism, not just around what the government is doing on coronavirus, but what the government might be doing on other public health issues. And we know that we are not at the end of this coronavirus fight. The Delta variant is posing new challenges. It is not going to be the last variant. There's a good chance that we will need, if not more people to get vaccinated, perhaps there will be a virus variant that comes along that forces all of us to get booster shots against it. So the more that Americans are firmly opposed to what the government is doing on coronavirus and broader on public health, the harder it is to fight those future battles. Dan Diamond covers the coronavirus pandemic for The Post. This story was produced by Renny Svernovsky. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Ted Muldoon. 
We have had a lot of conversations on the podcast lately about culture, new books that we've been reading, new museum exhibits. To catch up on some of those episodes, you can head over to our show archive at postreports.com and tell us what you think by sending us an email at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 